Let us pray again together. Father, we are grateful for your word. It is such a unique honor and privilege to be able to gather with your people to hear your word preached and proclaimed. But I pray now for the help of your spirit as I preach your word. I pray your spirit would come and help us hear your word and receive it by faith so you would mold us and form us and shape us more and more to be like the Lord Jesus in all things. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. So at some point in life, we all know what it's like to be in a a broken relationship. This is part of our earliest and most formative experience as human beings uh, in a fallen world. And we all experience this in a variety of ways. We experience it in our families in one way or the other. It's what creates the heartache in our conflicts in our marriages. That's why divorce is so devastating. Nothing feels more painful than to be separated from someone that you should be close to. The biblical story begins with the greatest and most consequential relational rupture that has ever existed, a rupture that our world is still feeling the effects of thousands of years later. The Bible begins by describing for us the break in relationship between the Creator and God's most important creation, between the living God and human beings. The Bible begins with a son and a daughter. They both turn against their father and they become enemies. They become rebels through their own foolish disobedience. And not long after we read about the work of God's creation, we read about the tragedy of God's children becoming fugitives on the run. They become exiled from their own home. The entrance of sin and evil into the world creates the first of many broken families. And we can think about every problem that we see around us, every problem that exists in our world, every broken political party, every societal problem that we see, some of our greatest individual battles and struggles that can all be traced back to this spiritual relational breakdown between God and human beings. And so really the rest of the Bible answers for us the question of how the most important broken relationship in existence can be repaired, how it can be restored. The Bible is going to teach us how humans can be restored back to God. It tells us the story of how sinful people can make it back to Eden, back to the place where they belong, the place where they can know God and enjoy him forever. And the Bible's answer to the problem of humanity's broken relationship with God, it can be found in one place, so really rather a person more accurately our great final high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today what we're going to be doing is we're going to unpack a passage from the book of Hebrews that explains for us the incredibly good news that Jesus Christ is our perfect final priest. He's the one who restores us back to God. He's the one who has forever dealt with our sins through the final sacrifice of his own body and his own blood. All right, so the essence of our passage that we just read a few minutes ago is that the Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest, and then it spells out for us some implications for what that means for us as God's people. Before we jump right into our passage this morning, I want to talk for just a minute or two about the Old Testament background of this concept of priest. If you ever read the book of Hebrews, it's obvious right away that it's saturated in Old Testament images and concepts. And none of it really makes any sense unless we understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament has taught, particularly how God's people approach God through worship and through sacrifice. 
And also this concept that God has appointed priests to enable God's people to draw near to him. This concept of priesthood shows up as early as the Garden of Eden from the very beginning when we see hints that Adam's calling included being a priest that was made to mediate God's presence to his creation. We can see this in the fact of the commands that Adam is given initially for him to work and to keep the garden. Those commands, work and keep, are going to show up later in the book of Leviticus to describe the tasks that priests are given regarding worship in the tabernacle. So Adam and Eve were called to be the first priests, people who would reflect God's image to the world around them. The priests of Israel later were made to teach the nations who God is. And so in a similar fashion, God wanted Adam and Eve to be the people who taught the world what God is like. They were made from the very get-go to teach the world who God is. But we know from very early on, from Genesis 3 on, that Adam and Eve, they failed in their mission as priests by listening to the voice of Satan and disobeying God. So instead of Adam and Eve demonstrating God's righteousness and his holiness and his glory and his character to the world around them, they shattered their God-given image through their fall into sin and ruin. And so it's clear from the very beginning of the biblical story that God's people, they need a perfect priest. They need one who would faithfully demonstrate to the world the perfect image of God. One who would be able to cover the shame and the guilt that broken sinners and rebels have accumulated. And so we see in Genesis that God himself is the perfect priest right after Adam and Eve fall into sin. Do you remember what God does? He demonstrates his love and his grace and his priestly role by he's covering Adam and Eve's guilt through blood sacrifice. Do you remember Adam and Eve were covered by the skins of animals, symbolizing the first sacrifice? A picture for us in vivid form, really what the whole story of the Bible is about. How God as priest comes to his people and how through sacrifice he draws his people close to himself. He restores relationship back to himself. The first sacrifice of these animal skins for Adam and Eve teaches us several things. It teaches us that sin is terrible enough to have it deserve death, but that God's love and mercy provides a substitute to bear the terrible judgment that our sins deserve. And so when we get to the New Testament, we see that the glory of this teaching of priests is found in the fact that God is going to send one final great priest to cleanse his people forever and to empower them to be the people they're created to be as image bearers of the living God. At the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, you read that Jesus being described as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So throughout the work, uh, through the work of God's final priest, Jesus Christ, God's people now are able to regain access into God's sanctuary, God's holy presence. And it's only through the work of Jesus, our great high priest, that we as God's people now are able to fulfill our mission given to our first parents to be God's priests to the world around us. It's only through Jesus' work as our priests that we're cleansed of our sins. We're enabled to be the people who are salt and light. People who are able to show God's presence and light to a world around us that is dark. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see that the death of Jesus, our priest, has secured forever a spot for us in the new heavens and the new earth. A place that's described as the new Eden. 
which is basically the whole world remade into a holy sanctuary. Okay, let's jump into our passage now in Hebrews uh, and talk about what we just read a few minutes ago. Our passage comes at the very end of Hebrews chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So this morning what I want us to do is I want us to look at two different aspects of Jesus' priesthood, two different aspects of his priesthood. The first thing we see about Jesus in our passage is that he is a sympathetic priest. Look again at verses 14 through 16. We're told that since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the author begins by telling us that the Lord Jesus is our great high priest, the one who as the perfect Son of God, he's already passed through the heavens in order to atone for our sins. You can really say that verse 14 is probably the best one-sentence summary of the entire book of Hebrews. At other places in Hebrews, we learn of the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice over all other sacrifices, because he's the high priest who made atonement for our sins in God's heavenly tabernacle. Instead of offering an earthly animal, he offers up himself the perfect holy sacrifice of his own body and blood that once and for all has forever dealt with the sins of his people. And when you read our passage, starting in verse 14, we might be tempted to think that Jesus, as the perfect divine Son of God, the final heavenly priest, might be someone who is so transcendent, so far above us, that he's someone who we really can't relate to in any meaningful way, someone who cannot really relate to us. The author of Hebrews almost seems to anticipate this misunderstanding of Jesus. And so he makes it clear that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, who perfectly understands your life and what it's like to live as a frail, weak human being. Several times throughout Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest because of his solidarity with his people, because he shares our very humanity. Hebrews has already mentioned this early in chapter 2, and we're told that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We also read at the end of chapter 2 that because Jesus himself was, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So Hebrews tells us repeatedly that Jesus is a priest who sympathizes with the weaknesses and the sins of his people. He feels and he suffers with his people. He's not a priest who stands over his people, but a priest who stands alongside his people, who fully understands what the human experience of weakness and temptation is like. We're told Jesus is full of grace towards us because he's experienced the suffering that comes when we're tempted by evil. Even though Jesus obviously never sinned, he understands the power of temptation actually better than we do as people who regularly struggle with sin, who give in to sin. C.S. Lewis very helpfully in his book, Mere Christianity, described temptation as a man who's walking against a very strong wind. And when the wind gets overwhelmingly strong, the man gives up finally. He just he lays down. That's basically what we do with temptation. But think about the fact that Jesus, as the perfect son of God, he never laid down 
in the face of temptation. He felt it in all of its full, exhausting power. He suffered the repeated blows of the force of the wind without ever giving in. So Jesus felt the overwhelming pull of Satan and evil on his own soul in ways far more profound and powerful than we ever will. And so Jesus really only truly knows what the power of temptation is actually all about. Only he knows the true force of evil that's pushing and pulling on people all the time to lead people into sin. And so all of this is why he's full of compassion. It's why he's full of mercy towards sinners who cry out to him for his help. It's also important to see that Jesus, um, that trusting Jesus' sympathy and compassion for sinners, this doesn't make us people who are soft on sin in any kind of way. Now, Hebrews would say this actually strengthens our faith. It enables us to persevere, to hold fast, as Hebrews says, to our confession of the gospel. It only strengthens our assurance that we can always go to God to get the help that we need. After we're told that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, Hebrews says uh, to exhort us that with confidence we should draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Because we're so sure of Jesus' compassionate grace for all who come to him, this means we can confidently bring all of our sins all of our weaknesses before the living God. People of God, this means you don't have to try to hide yourself anymore from the living God or those around you. You can boldly approach God when the fiercest temptations come. You can cry out to Jesus for his strength and for his help. We boldly approach God in the aftermath of our sin, trusting that Jesus welcomes all who come to him in repentance and faith, that he will never cast us out no matter how bad uh, no matter how bad you messed up again. I recently read, recently read this book that I really like. I highly recommend it. I don't know if you've heard of this one. It's called Gentle and Lowly. It's by a guy named Dane Orland. Gentle and Lowly. And I really like this book. Listen to what he says. Jesus deals gently and only gently with sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense or just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce, it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. Orlin goes on to say, we will be enveloped in either one or the other. Okay, let's pause for just a minute or two to consider what God is saying here. How, how does this connect with our own lives? I've got two things here I want us to think about. First, how do you treat your own weaknesses? And how do you treat the weaknesses of people around you? Some of us can show mercy to really just about anybody other than yourself. Some of us hide in our own hearts a voice, a condemnation directed towards ourselves that is relentlessly cruel, that is relentlessly harsh, a voice that you would never actually speak to another person, but you reserve that voice only for yourself. Or maybe we have a very difficult time facing and dealing with our own weaknesses because for a long time you've associated weakness with shame. Some of us believe deep in our own hearts that we really only have value and worth as human beings, if you are strong. And so what you do is you consistently work very hard 
to hide and deny and downplay your weaknesses. Listen, if any of that describes you, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to look to the Lord Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest, to see the gracious sympathy he has for you. He wants you to see that in the face of your sins and weaknesses, God isn't shaking his head at you with a deep scowl of disappointment on his face. God wants you to see that he doesn't look on you with disgust or disdain because you are weak. You can be weak and be someone who is still loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of being ashamed of you, Jesus welcomes you to himself so you can discover his gracious love and mercy for you even in the face of all of your weaknesses. And God wants you to align how you think about yourself and how you treat yourself more closely with how the Lord Jesus treats you, how he thinks about you. Others of us, we have a very hard time extending mercy to anybody else around us who's weak. Because you don't really see that there's mercy from God to you in the face of your many weaknesses. You might be someone who has a very hard time forgiving others because you don't, again, really see that you're someone who needs God's forgiveness in a very profound way. And that in Christ, God's already given me that forgiveness. And so if this is you, you feel chronically dissatisfied with people in your life. You feel as if people are always letting you down. People are always out to get you. People can never really seem to do the things you want them to do. And whether you know this or not, uh, if this describes you, people closest to you are actually really afraid to be honest with you. And they really don't want to share any of their weaknesses or failures with you. They're afraid to ever mess up around you because they know there's just going to be criticism. There's going to be anger. There's going to be disappointment if they're ever honest about the fact that they, they fail and they're weak. And whether you know this or not, the people around you feel like they can never be enough. They can never do enough to make you happy. People of God, if that describes you, God wants you to see yourself more accurately. He wants you to grow in your awareness that it's not only the people around you who are weak and broken, but that you also are weak and broken as well. God wants you to see and understand in a deeper way how the Lord Jesus treats your sins and your weaknesses, how he's full of inexhaustible sympathy and grace towards you. God wants you to grow in your assurance that he is not chronically dissatisfied with you, and he wants you to begin treating other people how God treats you. He wants you to see how in Christ God welcomes you to draw near to himself in order to find the mercy and the help that you need. Okay, the second thing I want us to consider is this. Are we at Trinity creating a community of people that reflects Jesus' merciful compassion for weak, sinful people? Jesus' body should be a reflection of what Jesus himself is like so that when people get around us and they get around Jesus' body, they begin to see what Jesus is like. They begin to experience Jesus in a very powerful way. They begin to understand in a deeper way how Jesus really loves people, how he cares for people. So I think another way to ask this question is this, is is the church the place where we draw near to the throne of grace together and we cry out together to Jesus for his help in the face of all of our weaknesses and our sins? Or is the church the place where you do your best to hide 
the places in your life that are the most broken. The place where you always feel like you have to project this false sense of strength. This facade that you've got it all together. That there really isn't much in your life that needs Jesus' mercy and grace. Is our church the place where people can be painfully honest about where they are weak? Or is church the place where you feel the most pressure to show only the parts of yourself that look strong? Okay, let's move on now. Let's look at the second half of what we read in our passage, starting at the beginning of chapter 5 and going through verse 10. The second thing we see about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus is a faithful priest. He's a faithful priest. So looking at chapter 5, it begins by describing and contrasting Israel's previous high, high priest to Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us that those who were Israel's high priests had to be appointed by God. This is not an office you can just grab for yourself. We're told that Israel's high priests were people who had some sense of solidarity, again, with the people they were offering sacrifices for. We're told that the appointed high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because the high priests of Israel fallen sinners like the rest of the people that offer sacrifice for their own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And so the contrast here with Jesus is unpriested. It's obvious, right? Jesus was appointed to be God's final priest for his people, and he's superior to all other priests because he's God's perfect son. He had no need to offer any sacrifices for himself before he atoned for the sins of his people. And because Jesus shares our humanity, we have a solidarity with him that runs far deeper than what Israel had with the priests under the Old Covenant. You can also see the humility of the Lord Jesus and the fact that he didn't grab a hold of the office of priesthood for himself, but he humbly received this from the Father. He took up the calling of priests knowing full well what this was going to entail, having to drink the bitter cup of the Father's judgment on sin and the suffering and death of the cross. The author author of Hebrews lends scriptural support for the fact of Jesus being appointed to this position of high priest. He's going to quote two psalms. He quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. These are psalms that Hebrews actually already mentioned earlier in the book. In quoting these two psalms, the writer of Hebrews combines two of the most foundational roles that show up throughout the book of Hebrews, this role of son and the role of priest. Jesus is superior to all priests because he's not a descendant of Aaron like Israel's priest, but instead he's the only begotten son of the living God. God's very word made flesh, sent into the world to finally and forever make atonement for the sins of his people. And we're told in verse 6, and again at the end of our passage, that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Something that's significant, and Hebrews actually unpacks this later in the book. Melchizedek, if you remember from the Old Testament, was this obscure figure who was both a king and a priest. He shows up fairly early in the story of Abraham. Hebrews presents Jesus as both the king and the priest of his people, and so he's the greater Melchizedek. We also see the faithfulness of Jesus as high priest in our passage and the fact that he offers up the totality of his whole life to God. Look at verse 7. It shows us that Jesus' sacrificial offering of himself included not only his death on the cross, but his entire life of suffering was offered to the Father. The author of Hebrews tells us that while Jesus was on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
And again, the contrast here between Jesus and Israel's priests is very stark. Israel's priests offered up gifts and sacrifices for sin. But Jesus offered up himself, his entire life of faith as a living sacrifice that included prayers and supplications that were prayed with tears streaming down his cheeks. The spotlight in verse 7 again is on the humanity of Jesus and what his faith actually looked like when he lived in this fallen world. And this might surprise us, us being the Presbyterians uh, that we are, but we see clearly in our passage that Jesus' faith, it was not stoic, intellectual uh, exercise, right? Jesus shows us that walking by faith in our fragile and fractured world looks like offering up loud cries to God for his strength and for his help. It looks like having moments where you cry tears of grief over the things and the people around you that are damaged, that have been devastated. In verse 7, you can hear echoes from scenes from the Gospels, like the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. The scene where many of us are familiar with, where Jesus cries out to the Father to have the cup of suffering pass for him, if possible. We read in this prayer that Jesus is in such anguish, such a deep pain, that the sweat pours from his body as if he were bleeding from a wound. Another aspect of the Lord Jesus being a faithful priest is also the fact that he matured as God's son. Look at what verse 8 says. It says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And then in verse 9, that through Jesus' suffering and death, Jesus was made perfect. Now what does this mean? We have to think very carefully about this. What does it mean Jesus was made perfect? that he learned obedience to what he suffered. This clearly can't mean that Jesus was simply flawed in some way and that God had to perfect him in some kind of process of sanctification like God does in us. What this does mean is that Jesus in his humanity, he grew, he developed, he matured. Again, the life of faith that Jesus lived while on earth as the perfect human involved maturation and growth. Jesus' faith wasn't static according to the scriptures. It grew as he grew as a man, and it culminated in the ultimate act of obedient trust in his Father, the suffering and the death of the cross. There's obviously some some mystery here. Jesus, someone who was and is fully God, is already perfect and complete in every way. The eternal and changeable God lacks nothing, and so the very nature of God is such that he has no room to grow because his perfection has been complete from eternity past. But the scriptures do make it clear for us that Jesus in his humanity did develop over time. Luke's gospel tells us how Jesus as a boy grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Luke also says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And Hebrews says something very similar. Hebrews tells us that one of the ways in which Jesus grew during his earthly ministry was through his suffering. Early in Hebrews chapter 2, we read something identical to what we see in our passage. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. People of God, what I want us to see here is that what was true of Jesus is certainly true for us as well. As people who are called to be God's priests in the world, We will mature, we will grow through our suffering. 
There's an ancient Greek proverb attributed to Aeschylus in his work Agamemnon that some, a lot of people in the first century of the Roman world, they would have known this. It says learning comes through suffering. Learning comes through suffering. And while that's certainly true, particularly when it comes to suffering that comes from our sins and our mistakes, where we have to repent and get up and do something different. But I want us to see it's also true for us in the same way that it was true for the Lord Jesus. God's design for our faith as human beings is that we grow in our trust and submission to God through the painful, hard things that happen in your life. Jesus learned to accept the will of his Father in all things, even the most painful, difficult things in his life. And so God wants our suffering in our lives to be the places where we grow and mature in our ability to believe and speak Jesus' own words of submission to his Father. Not my will, but yours be done. If we look in faith to the Lord Jesus as our perfect high priest, we will certainly discover that learning does indeed come through suffering. And we will experience what Jesus as our priest has already experienced, the eternal glory that awaits all those who persevere on the path that Jesus has already traveled ahead of us. It was only after Jesus suffered and willingly submitted to the trials of his Father appointed for him He was exalted through his resurrection and became the source of eternal salvation, as our passage mentions. And so Jesus shows us what awaits those who remain faithful all the way to the end, who follow his own faithfulness through all the sufferings and all the struggles of this life. People of God, I want to close our time in God's Word today by exhorting you to do the things that our passage has already mentioned. People of God, keep holding tight to your confession of faith in Jesus. Hold on to it like it's your most treasured possession, because it is. And keep drawing near to God because he's already drawn near to you in Jesus. Keep drawing near to God by gathering with God's people each Sunday to worship. Keep drawing near to God in repentance and faith. Draw near to him with the assurance that you have a faithful and merciful high priest who has already defeated and dealt with the guilt and the power of your sin. So now you're able to deal with it in a way that's honest and open. Draw near the priest who knows you better than you know yourself, the one who loves you more than you will ever fully comprehend. Draw near to the one who you will all, who always meet your weaknesses and your sins with his everlasting grace and kindness. Amen. Father, we praise you for your word that it's true and right. I pray, Father, that you would, uh, through your spirit, draw us close to yourself throughout our service. Father, I pray that you would commune with us, that you would fill our hungry souls with you. Father, would you uh, strengthen us and equip us for being the priests you've called us to be, people who show forth your image, uh, people who proclaim the good news of what the Lord Jesus has done in drawing sinners to yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.